Take a network break. Help yourself to a tasty virtual donut and join us for our weekly jaunt through IT news. We're talking new products from Aruba, Juniper, and Extreme, a story on cyber insurance, and more. This week's show is sponsored by Cables and Kits. They are experts and awesome. Get your IT needs and Cisco-related products at cablesandkits.com. Mention Packet Pushers for a free Cat8 cable and some loot. And stay tuned. After the news, we have a sponsored Tech Bytes conversation where we're talking to a network engineer at a healthcare company. They're replacing their entire suite of existing SD-WAN products with Aruba Edge Connect, and we're going to dive into the reasons why, including things like better failover performance and security. Of course, Aruba is the sponsor for that show. Greg, we're starting off with a nephew. I think we had a tech bite a week or so back with Nokia as the guest, mm. and somebody wrote in to say, why do you keep mispronouncing Nokia when your guest from Nokia pronounces it multiple times, and presumably he knows how to pronounce it? I don't know. It's Nokia, isn't it? I thought it was Nokia. I, I guess we'll have to listen to the audio. <laughs> well, first of all, thanks for your RFU. I really appreciate people who take time to get into the follow-up page. And I actually hadn't noticed. And when I saw the feedback, I realized that I'm using the Australian pronunciation, which is Nokia. And I don't actually hear anybody. Uh, usually when I'm listening to somebody and they say it, I reflect back their pronunciation. It's an instinctive thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But for some reason, Nokia must be really, it's not Nokia, Nokia. I don't know. Now, now I'm going to be conscious of it. This is not going to go well, Drew. This is, this is all wrong. We're going to talking about Nokia, Nokia. Yeah, I know, Nokia. Now that you're conscious of it, it's going to go very badly. It is, but definitely in other countries, people say it different. It's Nokia in Australia and in some parts of the world that I've worked in and in other places of the world, it's Nokia. I assume that the Finnish roots is Nokia. Maybe someone from Finland can confirm or deny that, I suppose. But I just had not noticed that I was saying it differently and no one pulled me up. So there you go. Thank you, Mr. Anonymous, for sending in your follow-up. I appreciate it. I guess we're taking all kinds of follow-up, I guess, pronunciations included. All your feedback is important because <laughs> we care. And you can give us more feedback at packetpushers.net slash FU. And yes, we do pay attention. All right, let's move on uh, to the news. Our first story, Reuters is reporting that U.S. energy companies are investing in cyber insurance policies after seeing the fallout from the ransomware attack on the Colonial Pipeline. The report says that only about half of U.S. energy companies had cyber insurance because of costs, but after the attack, interest is up. Uh, premiums apparently are also going up. The story says insurance companies are jacking premiums by 25 to 40%. <laughs> I've seen a number of articles, uh, obviously, in the same space. Obviously, if you're a CEO or a board or a shareholder in a company like an energy company, you're looking at this one going like, well, what are we going to do? And the first answer is not increase our security technology stack. The first one is buy insurance, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> That's, that was exactly my take. I was like, great, the, the strategy now is not to actually improve your security posture. It's to just buy insurance and call it a day. Which, well, there's a whole bunch of ideas that sort of came out of this. And I uh, have been sort of tossing this idea around on a piece of paper and a mind map and tossing it around for a while. The interesting part is the dynamics going on here. So the recent bout of high profile ransomware, we saw the Irish Health Service get ransomware this week. Um, and they were actually shutting down entire, not just entire regions, but the entire country Ooh, wow. uh, in IT infrastructure was hammered. Um, we've seen mental health services and so forth in different countries. So the, the whole thing is I think we're starting to see a level of profile now that the, plane, the pain is really bleeding in. And the fact that all the way up to the U.S. presidency, like don't, don't tamper with U.S. fuel supplies because people in America really love their cars and would really feel badly if, if there wasn't enough fuel to drive their cars around. Um and I think that a lot of boards and executives are seeing the high-profile press coverage, which might actually move the needle. All those years of security consultants telling him that you've got a problem is probably hasn't, is just been, you know, like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Right. Again, right. what, yeah. whatever, you know. How much will and it cost? And then nothing happening. You know, it's that crying wolf and then nothing happens. And uh, now that somebody's actually seeing some damage, I think it's going to be a thing. Now, the interesting part is that insurance policies up until now have been used by a lot of companies to sweep the risk away. So instead of actually instituting a security policy, it was cheaper to implement cyber insurance. And what we're seeing here is a real transition where the cost of cyber insurance is actually going to start matching the cost of security. So there's a change in that dynamic. Does that make sense? That does. And I think that's sort of what needs to happen if we don't want cyber insurance to be the security strategy as opposed to a robust investment in security backups and that kind of thing. 
Yeah. And when cyber insurance was cheaper than cybersecurity, it made sense to have insurance. Because the thing to remember here is that cyber insurance isn't just like, oh, make a claim and we'll pay you back like a car. It's actually included in the cyber insurance. They actually bring in experts to negotiate the ransomware. The insurance company doesn't want to pay out, doesn't want to let the customer decide how much it's worth. So the cyber insurance, in the event of a claim, they actually bring in security professionals to do an audit of your infrastructure to help you dig your way out. They bring in ransom negotiation experts, so so called anyway, um, because you know most companies, for example, if they choose to pay the Bitcoin ransom, they've often got no way to pay Bitcoin, so they hire an intermediary to do that. For example, right? Right. So, the, but the interesting part is that the com- the whole basis on which ransomware works is that it's now become very professional. So five years ago, ransomware was kind of like, ha ha, hacked your website, put, you know, put dirty pictures up or, you know, wrote some scribble across the top. Now what we're seeing is that ransomware by the darknet group that we're seeing going around at the moment that hacked the pipe is actually a company with customer service. They have a website, you log a case, Mm-hmm. And their product development cycle is they have an R&D team going around finding vulnerabilities. They have a product that delivers the platform. They're out there scanning the internet, finding vulnerabilities. People can come in and rent the platform to go scanning for vulnerabilities. When they find vulnerabilities, people can join the supply chain and say, I want to buy a vulnerability at this company so I can exploit it. Mm-hmm. And then they go off and start doing the negotiations. And then once you've actually got convinced the company to pay a ransom, the, they will also have a service where they will take your Bitcoin, launder it, turn it into cash. and right. So they've basically done a, a commercialization of the whole ransomware chain. Yes, yes. They've, they've built right. a business out of it. They've commercialized yeah. it. They've got sectors. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's so more power to them, right? And, and here's and, the thing. If I'm a ransomware operator, energy companies are now more attractive to me because I know they've got the insurance money. More importantly... You know that an energy company is going to be frightened. That's because if <laughs> so, we still I still operating on the belief that the problem with the pipeline that wasn't the pipeline systems got owned; it was the billing system got right. owned. It was the the back end systems. Yeah, that's right. And if they couldn't bill it, they weren't going to keep the pumps running, right? So they had to shut it down. So I don't think the actual pipeline the pipeline started up too quickly. I think it was actually the billing system that got taken down, and maybe a few systems got taken down concomitantly, but most likely it wasn't actually the pipeline control systems that got taken down. It was the fact that they couldn't invoice or track who was pulling fuel out of the pipe. Anyway, neither here nor there. So you've got this system where the darknets are now running a business model, which is franchised and industrialized like a commercial company. And at the same time, law enforcement is largely powerless. That is... They are harbored in places like Russia, North Korea, and Iran. Uh, Russia seems to be saying like, uh, you know, so what? They're taking down our enemies. Sort of, you know, the foreign countries that we're sort of having a, you know, on the other side, if you will. Wh- why would we, uh, you know, as long as they don't do it in Russia, then uh, why would we Why would we go after them sort of thing? Yep. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, and even if that wasn't an issue, a lot of these hacking crimes are very hard to prove. So in a court of law, if you turned up in front of a judge and said, you know, this is what we found, a lot of the legal systems don't have clear-cut laws about taking them down. It's very difficult to build up a body of evidence right. to get a conviction. Right. And then, of course, the second part here is the police forces don't often have the skills necessary to track and trace and gather and build evidence and to build a case to hand off to the legal system. So you've actually got a system set up at the moment globally where these ransomware operations will continue indefinitely. There's nothing to break the circle. Right. The other part is if uh, a state decided to crack down on uh, internal cybercrime actors, that business model is inherently mobile. They'll just pack it up and move elsewhere. So it's it's a, the mm-hmm. game of whack-a-mole again. Yeah. So if you were running a ransomware operation you know, on US soil or UK, European soil, they'd be up on your doorstep pretty shortly afterwards, taking down your, you know, knowing where you are, what you're doing. But if you're based out of Russia and you're using compromised resources around the world, kind of hard to doorstop you and take you down, right? Assuming, and even just doorstopping you is going to slow you down or stop you. So just that's not. So there's, at this point in time, it's hard to see how ransomware operations will cease. Right. Right. right? Which is why, so what's the next step in this cycle, Drew? What's the next cycle of virtue, <laughs> business cycle in a, in a capitalist society? Insurance. 
and, insurance, but and, and also- And after that, the government regulation will come in, yes. Well, here's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing that the market itself, like, so if you're a company, it's become a zombie problem. You don't have to have the best security, but you have to have better than most companies so that they're the ones that get caught and get taken out by the ransomware victims. So you need to be just slightly better than your uh, other people in your sector, you're saying? Yeah, that's right. So in a in a zombie movie, it's the slowest person that dies. Right. And then you don't they have stop. to outrun the bear. You just have to outrun the slowest person the bear is chasing. Exactly right. Yeah. So that's the first step. And that's what we're seeing at the moment is low-hanging fruit being taken. The next cycle, in the next part of this not very virtuous cycle is that companies, uh, security companies are now stepping up to the mark. And we've seen a huge amounts of capital, like tens of billions of dollars of capital poured into security companies because they can smell a market that's going to take off. They can actually smell a captive market. <laughs> and what we're seeing is the security companies are increasing the prices on their products and their services. And so what we're seeing is that the companies who've got money and the wherewithal are spending a lot of money on high price products and that makes it harder for the companies that don't spend to actually get into the game because the price market actually increases. Uh -huh. right? So it's a bit like you can, as the prices accelerate away and as the companies who've got skills or got access to skills are willing to pay for skills, accelerate their security strategies, the, the ability for you to get on the bandwagon to jump from low security to better security increases every month that you don't jump on. Right. Which is a fantastic scam because now everybody has to get on. Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. And so if you're a supplier here, you can keep increasing the price of your goods, increasing the price of your services in a classic case of exploiters exploiting capitalist plays. What they're and what the security companies are selling is the is cure for the symptom, but not a cure for the cause. Yeah. Well, so, I, yeah, this is, I think we could talk about this issue all day. Part of the issue, I think, I'm curious to see if these companies start pushing back against their uh, cybersecurity providers to say, how come we, we had all your stuff, we still got hit? Or if this actually mm. starts to blow back on, you know, general software vendors too, you know, the, the ISVs of the yeah. world, why is your stuff so insecure that I am vulnerable to all this? Uh, th there's, there's repercussions everywhere. Well there's, well, there's not because the security provider just goes, oh, well, it's not our fault. We just sold you a tool, right? right you didn't use it's it. It's not your fault. The screw, it's not our fault that the screwdriver was used to, un you know, we just make the bricks. The fact that somebody threw them through the window is not, and that would be their defense. Right? That's been the defense for so long. I wonder how much longer it's going to be able to carry water, particularly as cyber attacks are now bleeding out of the realm of cyber and into the realm of the real world that people mm -hmm. can actually feel the effects. If my gas price goes up or there's a shortage of fuel at the pump or an electricity grid goes down because of a cyber event, now regular people are like, what the heck is going on here and what are you going to do about it? And that I hopefully... It gets back to the original source. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not convinced. Yeah. Uh, but okay, right. So it's going to be interesting to see how this evolves. I think we're going to see a lot of what I call exploit, exploit capitalism. That is, they see that there's a market. It's driven by demand that can never go away. We're seeing venture capitalists move in. Venture capitalists are very good at maximizing price. They demand growth, so selling more and more of a product. And they also demand profit. So they want to see high profit margins and they know that they can tap into this. I think we're going to see a pretty vicious spiral of more security products selling for higher and higher prices at higher and higher profit margins, making it harder and harder for companies to keep up who have no choice but to keep up. And roughly it's going to be the same equivalence as selling painkilling drugs to people, to cancer victims, but not curing their cancer. I guess, although, I mean, if the cybersecurity companies overstep with their pricing, if I'm a CEO and I've already got the insurance, I would just say, I'm not going to buy it. I've got the insurance because... But they've already been, you know, we talked about this before, cyber insurance policies are being cancelled. Uh, even the cyber insurance that they're willing to sell comes with more conditions. They send in auditors to check if you've actually got a security policy. If you don't, you have to go and spend millions and millions implementing security policies to bring you up to standard. So the Before balance, the cyber insurance will be issued. Right. The yeah. balance is going to be when I've got my auditors in from the insurance company trying to figure out what my premium should be, how much do I have to pay the security companies to get the premium I want? Uh, mm. th I think that's where the balance is going to be between what the insurance company is telling me. How much? What's the minimum I can pay so I can get the cyber insurance? And that's going to be pretty interesting. It's yep. going to be very interesting to see how that pans out over time. But the point here is that this is a spiral 
that no, that the only winner here is security vendors and ransomware makers. Right, ransomware makers are the winners. <laughs> we can't cure the cause of the disease. We can't take out ransomware operators, right? Because they are shielded. They're industrializing, stepping up their operations to get bigger because they can scale up. And at the same time, the only way thing we can do to handle it then is to turn to prevention. But the prevention systems know that they've got you stuck in a captive market. So you're going to see rises in prices around security tools. They're going to bring out AI and threat management feeds and all those things. And you're going to be locked in with no chance of arguing about it because your cyber insurance is going to demand that it happens. It's going to be going to be an interesting play out, I think. It really is. Uh, and I'm laughing here in the background, not because this is funny, but because if I don't laugh, I'm going to scream. So that's, that's what that is. <laughs> Remember, every single time you spend money on cybersecurity, that is profit taken out of your company. Right. That is not dedicated to delivering a product. Right, which is why they don't want to spend a lot on it. That's the same argument for not spending mm. on security. It's money taken out of your bottom line for something mm. that you may or may not need. Essentially, <laughs> information security has always sort of been a kind of insurance program. Now they're just an actual insurance program that will pay the money for you uh, when you get breached. Yeah. But customers will pay more for a product and get no extra value. Right. That's fundamentally the... I yeah. think that's the takeaway. Yeah. Mm. All right. We've got links in the show notes if you want to find out more. Uh, I, just before we go, one tip of the hat to the headline writer of the Reuters story that kicked all that's off. It, the, the, the headline is, after colonial attack, energy companies rush to secure cyber insurance. I don't know if it was intentional, <laughs> but the subtext to me is that they're in securing the insurance, not their infrastructure. And that's part of the whole problem there. Yeah. Well, that's the point I think we're trying to make here. Yes. <laughs> But well done, whoever wrote that headline. All right, let's move on to some product news. Uh, Aruba Networks has announced they're going to start shipping the first Wi-Fi 6E AP in Q3 of this year. The 6E standard is an extension of the existing Wi-Fi 6 standard, and the basic difference is that it's getting advantage of new spectrum in the 6 gigahertz band. It was recently made available by the FCC, so that means wireless devices can now operate in the 2.4, 5, and 6 gigahertz bands if you're using Wi-Fi 6E. So this is great. I think Wi-Fi 6 and Wi-Fi 6E is an exciting step forward. And I'm, I'm slowly developing a thesis of the days of the product launch are coming to an end. And what we're seeing is the feature launch. And this is one of those. Wi-Fi 6E is like, okay, sure. Like, what's the E mean to me? Mm -hmm. um, it means extended. <laughs> it's Yeah, it's got an E in it because it's better or uh, true. It's yes. better or uh, well, that uh, was the whole point of the Wi-Fi Alliance switching from complicated things like 802.11ax to Wi-Fi 5, 6, whatever, because, oh, uh, it's a new number. I must buy the new one. Yeah. So congratulations to the Wi-Fi professionals for ignoring the Wi-Fi professionals. So I think the interesting thing about this will be, will this ever ship? The things that I'm hearing right now suggest that most of the chipsets that these companies use, they all use the same two vendors for the supply side, for the ASICs inside of their devices uh, on a six to 12 month timeline for delivery. And it's highly possible that even if you wanted some of these, you probably won't get them for six to 12 months. So if you think that Wi-Fi 6E is your thing, you might want to think about asking how long for delivery and seeing if your vendor will actually name a date. Uh, one of the interesting things about this is that we're actually expecting prices to rise substantially in the next 12 months. Most of the financial results, if you follow the financial news, we haven't talked much about it here, but across the board, all of the vendors are predicting substantial price rises in the components that make up their products. And they're telling investors that you're looking for a 5 to 10% increase in hardware prices in the, years ahead, in the year ahead. So I did, I spoke with Aruba about this new product and I asked them specifically given supply chain issues, can you actually roll out this AP in Q3 of 2021? And they said, yes, that's our target date. We are committing to it. We're sticking to it. Product will be delivered. So they swore up and down. Uh, so, you know, maybe they've got yeah, a but little how cash much product. Well, One? <laughs> it, the thing is though, I think they'll be okay because I don't really anticipate a large demand for a rip and replace. If you, especially if you just put in yeah. Wi-Fi 6, because Capacity at offices is low already in terms of the number of people trying to access your wireless network. So why spend yeah. the money upgrading if you're not at full capacity? Yeah, I find it hard to believe that demand for this will be, you know, high. Um, the even the press release doesn't talk about, you know, supporting laptops and smartphones. It talks about uh, IoT highlights, right? You know, which is basically what they're saying there. I think is they're not expecting to see lots of new desktops and smartphones. They're expecting a new market of devices. If you're thinking that you know the edge networking things like the edge IoT type market is going to be here by the end of 2022, 
I think that's pretty optimistic. I doubt there's any signs. There's definitely signs that we will see a lot of sensors coming onto the market in the years ahead. There's no guarantee that they will be here in 12 months. Right. So, the, the flip side of that is if you want to take advantage of that new six uh, gigahertz spectrum, the client devices also need upgraded radios and chipsets, and yeah. those are also going to be delayed. So there's a uh, hmm. there's a problem here. Yeah, there's two things. You know, a few there is certainly a few customers who want more from their Wi-Fi. Yeah, and they'll see Wi-Fi six E as a thing. Yes. There's also some customers who want Wi-Fi for specific niche use cases. That's fine. There'll be a few customers who are upgrading their Wi-Fi, so why not put the latest and greatest in? Uh-huh. But I'm not sure that there's like a huge demand waiting to, you know, there's not like a dam of money just waiting to be uh, for the spigot to turn on right. to rush out and buy this product. So yeah. unless I'm missing something, I think that you know where to, have, where to hit us with some follow-up. Yeah, I guess I would like to, you know, my speculation is that there's not going to be a big demand out of the gate for 6E for all the reasons we just outlined. If there are folks with different opinions, we'd love to hear it. Yeah. And I mean, six gigahertz is going to have a maximum of a six to 10 meter range anyway. Exactly. How useful is that? All right, moving on. Juniper Networks has announced version 4.0 of its Appstra intent-based automation software for data centers. The 4.0 version adds support for the Dell Enterprise distribution of Blasonic Network OS and support for VMware's NXT network virtualization software. So another one of our uh, product releases, as the days of a new product being launched is fading way behind us, Drew, and we're down to talking about version four of a product. Isn't that great? I I guess I don't understand the difference. (laughs) Exactly. Sometimes, once upon a time, we would have waited for a new product launch and something exciting and talked about a, you know, but this is literally, we're talking about version four of a software program as a major launch. And it's something that we've been doing for a while. It just struck me two weeks ago that really we're in a point where feature releases are what we talk about, not so much new products. The market is... You're missing the glamour and the excitement of something really brand new. So speaking of new, uh, Appstra has announced that it's going to continue its support for Sonic and multi-vendor solutions. So Appstra is going to be obviously uh, superlatively better on Juniper hardware, but if a customer chooses to run Whitebox and Sonic or other vendors of other brands of switches, they will continue to support it, which I think is important. That's definitely not something that Juniper has historically done. It would be, I think, ridiculous of Juniper to acquire a company like Appstra, which is supposed to help you run your data center regardless of the NOS and the hardware, for them to force people to use Junos and Juniper Gear. Specific. Also, in the face of supply chain difficulties, it might be easier to ship the product. Right. <laughs> Let's not talk about that. One of the things that they did make a big point about was restricting snowflake designs. They talked a lot about this in the presentation. And I think this is um, a direct move against its key competitor, which is Cisco ACI, which an ACI has like this it's a reputation for allowing what I call foot gun implementations. That's where a government, you know, the customer can take out two double barrel shotguns, point them at their feet and then pull the triggers and shoot themselves in both foots with two barrels at the same time. Uh-huh. And customers have any number of horror stories about products where they deploy the product in a, an unusual configuration because they don't know any better or the reseller doesn't know any better because they think they know better or the reseller thinks it knows better or they think they have a unique use case, but they don't. Everybody's got the same network. So I think this is interesting in that they're trying to get say to people, look, don't go off and be creative. Don't think that you're unique. Everybody's got to stick to the same thing because we know what works. You need to meet us somewhere in the middle here. And I think that's solid because what Juniper is effectively doing there is focusing on reducing the cost of support, which is good for business. It's good for the customer. And it's also good for Juniper's business. The less time they have to spend in support, the greater the profit margin. I I somewhat disagree in the fact that Appster is not meant to be a brownfield software product to help you clean up the mess of your existing data center. It's really intended when you start fresh with a brand new hardware design and you have to follow the exact template that Appster sets out for you and how you build out the leaf spine fabric. Um, They've only got a limited number of designs they will support. So it's essentially if you're building a new data center or, you know, a new Mm. pod inside your existing data center and you want to run Appster, that's fine. If you're thinking about putting it on your existing data center, that's not going to happen. So on the one hand, congratulations to Juniper and Asper for saying, stop being a snowflake, do it this way because it works and it's simple Mm. and better for everybody versus limiting their own market because most of the solutions, most of the data centers out there are brownfield. (laughs) So, Mm. you know, there's a trade-off. Yeah, well, I, I heard a term on Twitter this week where somebody called it a goldfield deployment. 
<laughs> I, I suspect the vendor was talking about their perception that they could. Uh, uh, <laughs> I like that. It was an opportunity for them to go digging for gold. Yes. Uh, maybe that refers to the idea of deploying. Like I, I see products like Abstra as being, here's my existing network and I can start over here with a new network. So think of it more like a pod yep. and you can build it alongside of it. You don't have to throw out your existing network. You migrate over time. Right. You start um, with a pod and then expand it. Yeah. And hopefully bring things over. Yeah. So, and when it comes to these sorts of, they talked a lot about validated designs and I'm always torn about validated designs because I've had such a horrible experience with them over the years in that validated designs are made by vendors who have a highly vested interest in selling as much product as possible. For example, Cisco's three-tiered design in the campus was literally designed to sell more product that customers didn't really need to buy. It was always said, oh, you know, you've got to scale up. And it became like a mantra that you had to have a three-tiered hierarchy. We never needed a three-tiered hierarchy. Two tiers, maybe one tier would work for most people, but people went out there and implemented the three-tier off the validated design and bought a lot more product than they ever needed. And a lot of the times validated designs don't take into the context of what the customer needs, but equally resellers and customers, because resellers are often responsible here, have demonstrated an amazing talent for buying the wrong things and deploying it badly over the years. So when it comes to validated designs, and this is what you have to have, where if you say we need to restrict snowflake designs, sometimes it also means the vendor sticking it to you by selling you more than you need. Um, and it also might mean that they're protecting you from resellers and customers doing dumb things. Somewhere in the middle there, there's a truth but I, and a balance, but I'm not sure if we're ever going to find it. My, my take is that Appster at least uh, is not trying to sell you more than they need because they don't really care what the hardware is. And frankly, they don't even care what the NOS is as long as they support it. And they support Cisco, Arista, Juniper, Sonic, and now NSX as well. So it's not that they're trying to sell you more. And in fact, based on what I understand of their design principles, it's pretty much a standard leaf spine or clove fabric, which is kind of the industry standard these days. So hmm. in terms of the design they picked, it's not like they're trying to force you into some kind of crazy thing that will make you buy more than you need. So, ah, uh, but software licensing Drew, it's all in the subscriptions. Well, you know, they're going to make their money. They're going to make their money, yeah. but it's all about the delayed revenue. Yeah, sure. Yes. But in terms of, are you getting stuck? If you're going to go to the app store route, are you getting stuck in some kind of crazy specific specialized design? I don't think so. Yeah. Not if you're comfortable. <laughs> Which is what a lot of customers who deployed Cisco's ACI did. Right. Yeah. yeah. They've got weird uh, implementations, you know, all sorts of things. Right. Yeah. So I guess we'll find out. Right. Where And then, then ACI has got all of these weird hardware requirements to run the software. You have to have at least three servers here. And if you're running a dual deployment, you have to have another three, but they can only be that and they can only be this. And, you know, just so much money spent on the accessories. So that's, you know, that's where the validity designs come in as they say, you have to have this to meet these obligations. And a lot of it can be pointless or unrequired. Anyway. I think this is something we'll also come back to, but let's move on. Uh, just a brief note about our sponsor, Cables and Kits. They're our sponsor for today's episode. They're an award-winning IT equipment dealer, and they focus on networking products, everything from SFP modules and servers to fiber and rack hardware. As part of Cables and Kits, gratefulness to you, the Packet Pushers listeners. They're giving away a Cat8 Ethernet cable to anyone who mentions Packet Pushers when they make an equipment purchase. So whether you're looking for a one-off wall mount rack replacement or a full-blown data center outfit, Cables and Kits can help your team. Go to cablesandkits.com and tell them that Packet Pusher sent you, cablesandkits.com. Moving on, Extreme Networks, they've announced the Extreme 9920. This is a new packet broker for traffic aggregation, packet filtering, replication, and packet processing. Extreme is targeting service providers and large enterprises with this product. Yeah, so I think the, the part that catches my eye about this, Drew, is the fact that somebody's using the Tofino 2 programmability to bring a new product. So this Tofino 2 ASIC or switch based around obviously the Intel Tofino 2 can be used for forwarding packets, but it can also be used for backwarding packets, if that makes sense. So when you build a visibility fabric, what you do is a packet comes in on a port and then you choose which ports to make a copy of it onto and send it out of others. Uh -huh. And that is a whole visibility angle that's been going on in companies like Gigasite with Gigamon and Keysight and with the Big Switch product in its day. They built these fabric, packet fabrics, but they had to use legacy ASICs to kind of make them happen. And it was really difficult. Whereas if you're using a programmable ASIC, it's really easy to make these packet fabrics, um, visibility fabrics out of just ordinary switches. So if you can almost think of this as like a white box switch, just getting programmed differently, and the question in my mind is, why did this take so long? 
Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we, we've been talking about Tofino for a long time back when it was Barefoot Networks as a startup and then acquired, acquired by Intel. And the, the whole go-to-market uh, value proposition was we've made this ASIC with a programmable packet processing pipeline and there's a language for it, P4, it's open source, where if you have a specialized use case for how you want to uh, process packets as it comes through the switch, we can let you do that. Yeah, and it's just a simple programming. Instead of programming the packet to come in, read the MAC address, determine the output port, switch it across the fabric, maybe you rewrite the packet, you know, with MPLS or, you know, you do weird things to the header, you put a monitoring tag or something on it. In this case, you're just writing rules so that you use it as a visibility fabric and say, oh, I see this packet's coming in. Well, I want to take the MPLS header off so that I can hand it off to a threat detection engine and it can scan it, right? right. Or I can see it's wrapped up in an eVPN. I could strip the tunneling off so I can hand it off to a packet logging engine and say, this application, let track this, do that. And that has taken so long for this to come through the products. And it strikes me that um, all Extreme had to do here was buy a white box standard model switch from its existing supply chain, uh-huh. drop some code on here, and then you've got a visibility fabric. So good to them. I think this is a, this is a fine idea. There's absolutely no reason for this not to be successful. Right. It seems like a great use case for the Tofino ASIC and a smart use of the ASIC by Extreme. And not a lot of and not a lot of work. They probably didn't commit millions and millions of dollars developing a custom piece of hardware. Blah blah blah. They're literally probably buying off the shelf. They talked a little bit about. Um, their fabric software. So they would have had to develop some sort of software um, to program it so you can set it up and do it. And there are other companies out there doing that. And But this is great for Extreme. I think this gives them a, a real step up and smart way to do it. Good execution, I suspect. We'll see actually how the deliverable goes, uh, where Extreme has a, a much more checkered history in delivering a product and getting customers to buy it. But good, I think this is a nice step forward. Uh, moving on, upgrades to the USB-C standard will allow it to provide up to 240 watts of power to charge and operate devices, which is uh, more than doubles the current standard of 100 watts. This is interesting in lots of ways. Obviously, delivering 240 watts, that is a lot of current. <laughs> I don't know what you think, Drew, but that's a lot of current to be delivering over the USB-C connector. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just feels, what it strikes me is how innovative the USB forum has been in moving their standards forward, right? They are literally continuing to iterate over the USB standard at a very quick rate, like every six months or so. And this is actually USB uh, power delivery specification revision 3.1. It actually defines three new fixed voltages, 25 volt, 28 volts for above 100 watts of power, 36 volts to get above 140 watts and 48 volts above 180 watts. And so this really changes the way it works. Um, and what strikes me is how much of a lost opportunity this has been for Ethernet, because effectively for personal networking, where we could have had Ethernet to Ethernet connectors or, you know, why are we using USB for this? Or why aren't we using Ethernet? It would have been a fantastic opportunity for the Ethernet market to be into the personal space. And USB has been able to control the discussion around the connection of personal devices to computers, device to device, and now for power supplies and powering devices like when I get a home speaker, it's plugged into USB, mm-hmm. right? Yep. So instead of being plugged, it could have been an Ethernet standard. So I could have had a wired Ethernet network in my house. They completely missed the opportunity here. And it wasn't, didn't strike me. And I thought that's, you know, we do have new versions of Ethernet. Like, for example, there is automotive Ethernet, which is a single pair Ethernet operating at gigabit speeds. So it's not like we can't change the physical layer and use it in stuff. But the adoption of single pair Ethernet, like in the automotive standards, is so low. It's very expensive. It's in limited quarantines. It just strikes me that Ethernet has really missed a trick overall. Yeah, I guess maybe they just thought the consumer market wasn't really worth their time, but that's USB has stepped in very well there. I will say uh, sometimes I get frustrated with the USB given the sudden proliferation of USBs when it used to just be one, which was always nice and handy. <laughs> now I need to have well, a, a bunch of USBs hang off my tool belt to plug different things in. But Well, they're fixing that, Dre. You'll be pleased to know they're going to put a marker on the head on the connector uh-huh. and that will define which standard it supports. Okay. So Great. they're developing new icons for, so that you can know that this is a US 3.0, US 3.1, and it will tell you which features of the USB standard it supports. I'm sure you're glad to know that. I'd be happy to carry around the giant laminated card to make sure I'm plugging the right thing into the right thing. Okay. And one last thing, uh, props to the USB forum for being so easy to get access documentation. I'm actually reading the document to part of this was I actually read the specification 
the USB forum makes all of their stuff available for download. So I could just go there, click on a button, and there's the specification. There's all the meeting minutes. There's everything I need to know. It's all there. Whereas whenever I want to do this with Ethernet, I have to, I have, I'm not allowed to. I'm not allowed to see the meeting minutes. They're secret. If I want to read the standards documents, I have to pay for them, some thousands of dollars. And I'm pointing my finger at the IEEE again. I've done this a few times. I do believe that the IEEE is the wrong way to run a standards body. If you want a successful open standard, you don't give it to a body that runs secret meetings in a closed organization and charges money to access its documentation. Yeah, definitely perhaps for openness. Hmm. All right, let's wrap up with a uh, story on Dell Technologies. They reported their Q1 2022 results. The company had net revenues of $24.4 billion and net income of $938 million uh, when you break it down by business units. Uh, the PC unit had a fantastic quarter. They brought in $13.3 billion in revenue, up 20%, and the infrastructure group had revenues of $7.9 billion. The interesting part about this is the fact that Dell is also talking about how supply constraint, they would have made more money if they could ship more products mm -hmm. or they would have had more money if they actually had a ordered ahead instead of doing just in time. But anyway, that's another hobby horse for another day. So I think it's interesting that they managed to make money in face of it. And I think the point here is that Dell's had a, a very successful quarter on the basis of the transition from uh, working in an office to working in remote in distributed work and that the nature of distributed work required more devices to scale up in the year. And they're also predicting that it will continue. And they're also predicting that because of supply chain problems, they'll be able to raise prices and charge customers more for the same stuff that they sell them today. Yeah, uh, I feel like this is a bit of a sugar rush for Dell's uh, profits. Eventually, uh, all of these device sales will sort of peter out as people get the gear they need. Uh, so I wouldn't expect this to continue super long time. But yeah, for the time being over the, the the time of the pandemic, the past year or so, everybody's been grabbing up laptops and tablets and everything to support work from home and school from home. So, yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I think a lot of companies bought computers for their stuff to put on desks at home, yep. not laptops, but computers mm -hmm. because they're cheaper than laptops usually. Um, and so, you know, different companies would approach this in a different way and so forth and so on. So I think it's been very unusual year, as you say, but I think that the surprising part about this is that companies like Dell and Cisco and HP are all saying in their financial results, we're going to be able to charge more because there's less product around. It's going yes. to cost us more and we're going to be able to charge more. We'll pass that um, cost So on. the supply chain is both bad for vendors, but mostly it's good because they see it as an opportunity to raise prices on customers. There you go. And that's going to drive inflation. So, But that's a different story. All right, the link in the show notes if you want to find out more. That does wrap up our news portion. Stay tuned for our sponsored Tech Bytes conversation on an SD-WAN replacement. That's coming right up. Welcome to the Tech Bytes podcast. Today we're talking SD-WAN with Victor Vega. He is a network engineer with Sanitas USA. They provide healthcare and insurance services through a nationwide network of clinics and hospitals. We're sponsored by Aruba for this episode. We're going to talk about Sanitas's Aruba Edge Connect SD-WAN rollout, why they're replacing a competing product, and how they're meeting security requirements, and more. Victor, welcome to the podcast. So given that Sanitas is in the healthcare and insurance space, I assume you're dealing with applications like electronic medical records, medical imaging, and uh, general business apps as well. What's the application mix? Basically, everything that we have, the, the bulk of data that goes through our network right now is, is more of packs, you know, imaging, ultrasound. Uh, and uh, our, our EMR is, is hosted uh, externally. We have a uh, e-clinical works. But we don't host it. It's hosted by them directly. So basically, most of our applications are outside. We are we, we're pushing for the cloud. So most of our items are just are, are sitting outside. So what kind of problems were you dealing with that sort of got you looking at SD-WAN? So um, we're using a, a different vendor. And we were having some issues where uh, I couldn't control the one links. Mm -hmm. So it, it was more of a, hey, you know, like a... For example, one of them was like packet loss and and people were telling me like, hey, you know, like we, we have no internet in this place. Can you can you check it out? I don't like how I'm getting no alerts or anything, you know, like uh -huh. how, how does that happen? So uh, I went and verified the sites. And of course, you know, there's there's like 30 percent, 40 percent packet loss. And I have two, two interfaces. I'm like, why is this not automatically filling over, you know? So I just called and I, I put tickets and whatnot. And then I was able to talk to some of the reps of, of that company. And they were saying, hey, you know, like 
it's happening, you'll have to restructure your your <laughs> your environment. <laughs> they said, and I was like, wow, all right. And so this is the difference between an SD-WAN solution, which is a legacy product where somebody just bolted up two IPSEC tunnels and then did some load balancing across the two, to a genuine advanced integrated SD-WAN or SASE solution, which is where they create a new type of tunnel, which is aware of the traffic that's inside it. And it's it, it's able to scale to hundreds of sites and it doesn't need to start saying, well, the problem isn't our product, it's you. You have to design your network this way to get over because our product works this way. And they make it your fault instead of offering you a solution. That's kind of what I heard. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. They basically said, hey, you know, we have no other option but doing this. You cannot do what you're trying to do with the appliance you already have. Because I thought, hey, maybe, you know, we can just use this this one. But no, it, it's it's basically you have to have like a specific unit. So, you would so have like to go deploy that level. in a colo somewhere and operate that yourself. Yes. Just to scale yeah. to 60 sites. Yeah. Just to be able to use the features that were already included in the uh, Aruba appliance, wow. you know, in the Silver Peak Aruba appliance. Yeah. So, so I was like, all right, that was one of the main thing. And of course, one of the features was for it to automatically fail over when it detects pack loss, you know, like why should I have to be looking at that? <laughs> or just like, I, I thought that was one of the features of SD-WAN, you know, and then, you know, uh, uh, what we have is definitely not what I thought it was. So how did then you land on Aruba because there's lots of other SD-WAN vendors out there? So I basically talked to uh, one of our vendors and said, um, so, hey, say, you know, like I'm having this problem. I don't, I don't know what to do with it because, you know, I, I know that if I go to my boss and said, hey, we need to <laughs> change stuff around. <laughs> that product that we bought, we need to buy a different one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like it's not going to happen like that. So I have to have some sort of. I don't know, some, so, something that makes more sense and that I can present to him as a will be the case. And they offer a few options, you know, and, and, and one of them was the Silver Peak Aruba one. I also talked to another vendor and, and was seeing what they had to offer. And, you know, so I've been to like three different SD1 vendors and Aruba caught my attention just by the mere features. Right. I guess the, the interesting part about your solution was you were aware of the features that you wanted because you already had one. This is something that happens a lot. You make a decision or you get a solution. And then once you're using it for the first time, you realize the things that you didn't have or you could have when you go and compare it to another product. It's, there's always a learning experience in these sorts of things. Exactly. And, and one of those features that I was really interested in was, I believe it's the deduplication. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That feature, uh, I was really interested in uh, because I was like, I don't, and we don't have any of that. And when we send stuff, we send data and it's just the same chunk of data every time we, we, we send it through. So yeah. that to me, to me was like, like magic, you know. <laughs> That's related to the heritage of the product before Silver Peak was a WAN acceleration product. And a key feature of that product was that its deduplication was one feature in how to accelerate WANs. Obviously, if you don't transmit a packet over the WAN, then you're accelerating the performance, right? It's not immediately obvious, but that's how it works. And that's that heritage of the uh, Silver Peak, which is now part of the Aruba Edge Connecting. So I'm curious, you know, you've, you've got a product in place, you have to put in a new product. I presume you're, did you try it out at a few sites first to make sure that the, the second time around you weren't, you were gonna get what you needed? Yeah, we set up a test bed. And uh, I tested it and I tested in one of our sites. It included bringing up the virtual appliance in Azure. And then we, we deployed one of the clinics and just, you know, work on the um, setting everything up to look exactly like what we have today. Mm-hmm. Basically, Did you do that yourself? Like you didn't, or did you work with a reseller? Was it, I mean, was it difficult to do this? We actually had an, an SE mm-hmm. for Silver Peak. And he helped me with with the orchestrator, you know, getting the orchestrator up and getting the, how do you say, the licensing running. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I I basically built the site to site connection, not the site to site connection, but the actual the actual setup, you know, mm-hmm. on the, the the template on the appliances and just deployed it. It was pretty simple, to be honest. I was surprised because you know, <laughs> so it was gonna be harder, but then you know, it was pretty simple. So I just okay, it's, it's running. I'm like, I thought it was gonna take me longer, you know, because it's just a br- something brand new, you know. And now you've got an apples to apples comparison between the two products. Did you notice a difference? Like what kind of things did you see? Definitely. Uh, I mean, the, the, of course, one of the things was pack loss, uh, not having to mm. 
not having to be taken a, a look at. And one of the biggest thing for me was to actually seeing all the traffic that goes through. I'm able to see the domains on the dashboard. You know, I'm able to see um, the the jitter, the the what sites are have are getting looked at. You know, uh, which ports, everything. I have so much visibility on the <laughs> on dashboard itself. That but is, the, just, and it's just you there, right? So you've got no one else to turn to, and. I remember working at sites alone and you were very, it's a very lonely position and you really need that visibility to feel like you're in control. Yeah. We have some issues like for like reaching up. I believe it was a, a like a camera system. Mm-hmm. We had a, one of the camera systems I have set it up to where it only allows the port 80 because it's what is used internally for that camera mm-hmm. system. And I had set up the, the security policy on the appliance and well, I set it up actually on the, on the, the controller, yeah. The core yeah. orchestrator, yeah, through the template. And they were like, oh, you know, like we can like, we can go to the browser, but we're not able to see it through the application. The, the, the machine has a, an application. I mean, it comes with an application, which they set up the application. And one of my guys was like, hey, you know, like, like I just, I don't see anything. Nothing comes, comes through. I see the connection is made, but nothing comes through. And I'm like, all right, just, just tell me what's the IP you're, you're sending the traffic through. You know, and he said, "Hell yeah, hit this! You see, give me the, the the internal IP, whatever." I take a look at the at, at the flows, and I see it there. It's trying to go through port five five eight. You're actually just, doing packet captures in the Silver Peak in the Edge Connect product. Yeah, well, it's the the traffic flows tab has that, so mm. I'm able to see that through that tab. I don't have to do a PCAP like and wait for it, and mm-hmm. then bring up Wireshark and figure it out. You know, it was, it's just showing up in there. It says, hey, you know, like it's, uh, the traffic is not, it's just uh, inbound. It wasn't, mm. wasn't coming through. And when, when I take a look at the at the traffic flow, it just says that it's, it's, uh, the policy is denied. So I automatically went over to the policy, changed the policy, security policy, and boom, and, and it comes up. And I, have, I didn't have to like go around like, uh, you know, what, you know, <laughs> let me back it <laughs> capture, yeah, let me yeah. see what's going on. You know, no, no. It's, it was Normally, right you would have face. to get a laptop and get a packet capture, and then go to site, and then put a network tap in of some sort, find a point at which you could capture. But you just did all this from the office, from from the from console. the dashboard itself. Yeah, from the right. dashboard itself, it's just it's just right there. So I'm like, all right. I mean, <laughs> like I cannot like who who can complain that that's what I wanted. Like I wanted a lot more visibility, and I'm getting it from this. So I just I, I think it's the that that was one of the best case scenarios that I can put. Mm. Like okay, you know, like. I'm I'm having no issues basically with it, so I cannot say, hey, you know, I have this happened, that happened, or that because I mirrored what we already have. But since I since I, I set up different security policies and I'm I'm tightening it up a little bit more than what it is on the other solution, I've noticed a difference, and to me, that's a huge difference. And another thing was related to tunnels. I had this happen to me before with with the other vendor, where the tunnels. I had the site up, you know, and the and the VPN tunnels are up and everything, and but the traffic's not going through. And I'm like, what? This like I'm kind of doesn't make much sense, right? I restarted uh, one appliance, you know, waited a little bit, see if it. Nope, the tunnel didn't come up. I mean, the tunnel came up, but the traffic was not going through. They restarted right. the other appliance, right. you know, n- nothing happening. And I'm like, like the appliance came up, and and I'm still I'm still in the same boat. And I'm like, I'm gonna have to make it. I'm gonna set up a ticket, whatever, you know. I set up a ticket and I'm like, hey, there's no option in the dashboard for me to like uh, rekey the tunnel. Yeah. yeah. So how do we do this? <laughs> and the guy was like, hey, just restart both appliances at the same time and then they're going to refresh the <laughs> whatever key. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, just take your network down so that you can refresh the crypto. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's a, that's a solution that's not finished. <laughs> and certainly yes. not working for you. I'm also able to go into the CLI. You know, in the other solution, I'm not able to go to the CLI and do anything. Mm-hmm. I don't have that option. I thought that, you know, I, I, I wanted to see the CLI. I have solved issues on, with other appliances before that I'm able, I have to go into the CLI to solve the issues because they, the GUI doesn't show them. To me, that, that's another, you know, Right, you want to have the, the the orchestrator when you need it for quick looks, but if you have to dig in, it's good to have the CLI as a backup. Exactly, exactly. So to me, you know, like those things were okay. You know, like this is this is this is it. This is what we need. Now, what about you? Mentioned IPsec tunnels. I assume security is an issue. How does uh, SD WAN fit into your security strategy? Are you doing things like segmenting traffic using the? I know Aruba has a, an onboard stateful firewall. 
Yeah, I am. I am doing the the security policies. Is what what it's called in the in the Aruba option. Mm-hmm. And I set up a few zones. Those zones are zones that are separated by roughly by name, right? Right. <laughs> so <laughs> I have a I have a zone for IoT. I have a zone for PCI compliance, and I have a zone for everything else that is unrelated to to just regular data traffic. Same thing for Azure. I have rules that go from a, a, a zone to a different zone and only allowing specific DNS names or IP addresses. So you're getting this essentially fine-grained control that you need. Exactly, exactly. That is only a few steps, and it's really, really simple to use. I did have the option in the other appliance, but it was Ruth Goldberg, right. to say the least. You know, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you have to do like... 15 things and it was just a mess. Yeah, the, the, the simpler you can make things, I think the better off you are operationally because the, the more complexity, the more confusing, the more potential for mistakes. Exactly. So, so that was a big deal for me that I love that security part of the appliance where I just basically set it up. I also set it up as a template and I can just submit it. Can just or The orchestrator will take care of it, send it everywhere else, you know, works like that, fine. If I have mm. to make a local rule for a, a, a site that has a different setup or, or needs to reach a, a location or something else in a different way, then I can do it locally. But I'll, I usually just submit it to the orchestrator. And I like it because I'm able to just once and done in the other appliance, in the other you know vendor that I, that I use right now, I have to basically do 50 changes in one appliance and then move to the next appliance. So... I think you've got this, you said 60 sites you've got. How Are you planning to roll out Aruba everywhere? Yes, yes. Right now we're running a hybrid setup because of licensing. Mm-hmm. So we're little by little. I mean, every every year we're basically getting a budget for that. And I'm trying to at least move uh, some of the old sites to the Aruba setup. At least 10 per year, depending on what they what they say, you know, with the budget constraints and whatnot. But all the new locations I'm bringing in in Aruba right off the bat. Well, thank you, Victor, for speaking with us. And thanks to Aruba for being a sponsor. If you like this show, you can find it and many more fine, free technical podcasts along with our community blog at PacketPushers.net. You can follow us on Twitter. That's at PacketPushers. Find us on LinkedIn. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. And last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.